0: You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening and welcome to Exodus Unveiled. We are on part seven, which is Parsha Truma. And this week's reading describes what one could call a portable synagogue uh, that the Jewish people were directed to build in the desert. Now, when were... Jewish people told this commandment. We just had the giving of the Torah. Two weeks ago, last week, we had all a list of the commandments. And this week, we have this structure, which is to be built. So if one views the Torah chronologically, this was the next set of laws that were given to the Jewish people. This was a primary directive, because this was going to be the place where God's presence would come It was an extension of Mount Sinai. The experience that they had at Mount Sinai would be recaptured whenever they went into the Mishkan or the tabernacle. Uh, not sure what a tabernacle is. I think it has uh, tables or boards. Uh, but let's call it the Mishkan, the dwelling place, which is, uh, as I said, like a, uh, like a synagogue, a gathering spot and a place where offerings were brought. So according to the first narrative, It's chronological order, and it's so important because it's the place where the Sinai experience will be continued throughout the desert. According to other commentaries, it's not in chronological order, and the original plan is that God's presence would be everywhere. God's presence would be felt throughout the entire world. After Mount Sinai, it would be open and revealed and accessible. But after the sin of the golden calf, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks, uh, there was a pulling back of God's presence in the world. And so instead of it being all pervasive, God gave them this location, this locus to come to, to experience a divine encounter. So those are the two outlooks. Now, uh, the beginning of the Parsha has some, when it introduces uh, the building of it at first it talks about that the all the materials will come from the people in fact Truma means a uh, it's a gift which is set aside and um, it means to to apportion from one's belongings and uh, and to sanctify it, to give it to God so there's uh, some of the language is very unusual. And if we look at it, we'll get a deeper insight into the Jewish view on giving and on charity and on dedication to the Almighty. So first it says, take from me, truma, tikhu li truma. Now, normally it should be give to me, not take for me. Uh, where is it being taken from? So simple understanding is from what they'd already set aside. But what it really means is that by giving we really take, by giving we really get something, and especially in this case, God doesn't need the Jewish people to give to Him. Uh, so really, it was for the Jewish people. So in the act of giving, in the act of charity, it's oneself who becomes enriched, and then it says, "Anyone who dedicates their heart, Arsha li Libo." And there was three uh, categories of giving that were done. Uh, The first two uh, were silver, special silver donations, uh, silver for the sockets. And the middle category was silver for the communal sacrifices, which would begin to be brought in this uh, temple. And that later in Jewish history translates to the half shekel. Uh, Last Shabbat, we read Parsha Chikalim, Right before Purim, there's a custom to take a half shekel, which in the States, we used to take a half dollar coin, set it aside and give it to charity. And the offerings brought in the temple were brought, one of them was brought on behalf of the entire Jewish people. So everyone gave a little bit. And the third category were all of the... uh, all of the raw materials that were needed to build this structure. And it was quite ornate. Gold, um, even red wool in the ancient world and purple wool was a very big luxury. Uh, there were precious stones embedded in the high priest's uh, breastplate. Uh, lots of silver as well, uh, beautiful embroidery. So all of this was given voluntarily. And that was a sliding scale. Everyone would give according to their heart and according to their ability. And uh, what is extraordinary, if you think about it, is that the Jewish people just left Egypt. And we're told that when they left Egypt, they were given the riches of Egypt. So here they are. They were slaves for decades, for generations. They finally are free. They're not just free, but they're rich. They struck it rich. And they take all of this wealth and they give it back to the Almighty. That's really dedication. And um, was part of the connection of the Jewish people also being their side of the covenant that we spoke about last week. And it says, make for me this sanctuary and I will dwell amongst them. And all the commentaries point out, it should say, I will dwell in it. I will dwell in the structure. God's presence would come, especially to Moshe, um, when he would receive prophecy. And, uh, But it says, I will dwell within them, because once again, the purpose wasn't for God have a, to have a place for God's presence to make itself revealed in this world. It was that God should... Uh, dwell within each and every one of the Jewish people, that the experience of this place should transform every Jew and they should internalize that experience and find the godliness within themselves, wake up the godliness within themselves and bring God into their lives. That was the goal of it. Okay, so let's get to the structure. So uh, the Torah starts by describing the Aram, The Aron means a box. And what was inside the box? The tablets of the Ten Commandments. Now, Raiders of the Lost Ark, um, Harrison Ford, vintage film, they're searching for the Ark. Where do they find it? In Egypt. And they finally find it, and it opens up, and there is some type of nuclear explosion that decimates uh, the enemies. So people are fascinated by the supernatural dimensions of the Ark, um, but for us it's not the supernatural dimensions. It's not that it's a golden box. It's not that it's a treasure. It's that it housed the tablets, which represented the Torah, and Torah is something that we that is a foundation of our people and of our values and of our Jewish lives. That's why the Ark was in the inner room called the Holy of Holies. And that's why it's the most revered artifact. But even without it, the temple still stood. What do I mean? After the first temple was destroyed by by the Babylonians, the Talmud says that the Ark was hidden. And here's the big secret. Where is it? So they say it's underneath the Temple Mount. And The story is in the Talmud that one of the Kohanim was once serving the temple. He stubbed his toe on one of the floor tiles on the temple mount. He pried it open. There was a hole. They lowered him down in a rope, and he never came back. And so they closed it up and sealed it. In the Middle Ages, uh, the Crusaders came to Jerusalem, and there was an order called the Knights Templar, and they camped on the temple mount. They said that their function was to accompany the pilgrims to Jerusalem and to protect them. But really, why were they called the Templars? Because they were digging under the temple to try and find the Ark. According to many, the Holy Grail was not Jesus' kiddush cup. It is the Ark. And uh, once again, seemingly revered for its supernatural powers. In the book of Samuel, when the Ark is captured by the Philistines, A plague breaks out, and they send it back to the Israelites. So uh, it's under the Temple Mount. What does that mean? So in the center of the Temple Mount, where the shrine of the Dome of the Rock, the golden dome is, there's a big stone, uh, which would have been the place of the Ark. And in fact, if you look at an aerial photograph, there is a square cut out uh, into the rock, Uh, which is the emplacement for the Ark. And it matches exactly the measurements of the Ark, which were two and a half cubits by one and a half cubits. And um, on on the side of it, there's a tunnel going down to a lower chamber. And the British archaeologists in the early 1830s uh, already documented that below that chamber, there was another subchamber with tunnels leading to them, in 1967, when the Israel retook the temple, the Western Wall Plaza, they opened up one of the gates, which gives off from that plaza inside in the covered area, and the Arabs heard them digging. They protested. It was shut down, and since then, uh, no one has gone into those lower, um, into those lower chambers. Now. An interesting addendum of history is the uh, character that Harrison Ford was playing searching for the Ark, his student today has researched some of the tunnels. And in the Book of Kings, one of the Israelite kings uh, fled Jerusalem. He escaped through tunnels and wound up in Jericho. So his theory is that the tunnels are not necessarily right under the Temple Mount or the Ark and all the other gold implements would have been found already but there are kilometers and kilometers of tunnels some of which he's explored in consultation with rabbis and Kabbalists will we discover it we shall see according to one uh, tradition the temple isn't supposed to be rebuilt until more than half the Jewish people are in the land of Israel and they say we're coming very close to that place Okay, so what was the ark? So it was a box. The box was made of wood. It was uh, plated with gold on the outside and plated with gold on the inside. And then had a gold cover. On the gold cover with two golden cherubim, which are uh, childlike faces with wings spread out above it. Now, why the gold? So the whole temple... Uh, is adorned with precious metals, as I said, even precious stones. And the idea is that things which we are really valuable, which we value greatly, we beautify. We put beautiful things in. We try to make our homes beautiful. Uh, People get engaged. They give a precious stone, a diamond. So it shows that we're giving importance to something and it shows that, and it's also part of the Spiritual experience was the aesthetic experience of being in a beautiful place when you encountered the Almighty. But still, why gold on the inside? I understand gold on the outside. So each of the details of these implements we're going to describe has a moral message. And the message here is uh, that a person should be gold on the outside and gold on the inside. Toho kabaro. The way we're on our outside should be the way we are on our inside. In fact, the way we are inside is even more important than the way we are on the outside. And we're going to look closely at some of the details of the descriptions which bring out these kind of messages and teachings. And they were there to impart those messages. Uh, Another one is that the box had rings on the side and poles were put in them, all three of the implements we're going to describe. Only the ones on the Ark could not be removed. Why? It's a message to tell us that the Torah, the Ark, the tablets with the commandments on them, is portable. It goes wherever the Jewish people are. It's not dependent upon a temple in Jerusalem. It's not dependent on any physical location. So the cherubim, it had uh, an image uh, of a face, of a child. Nachmanides says, how could you have an image of a human on the innermost most sanctified spot? Doesn't the second commandment tell us not to make images? So he says, you're right. If God had not commanded it, it would not be. According to Maimonides, they had to be weaned off the idol worship and the images that they had been exposed to in Egypt. According to others, according to the Talmud, each of these cherubim represent a partnership, represent, one represents God, one represents the Jewish people. And it's said that there was a miracle that occurred when the Jewish people and God were on good terms, the cherubim would be facing each other. When there was a falling out, so to speak, they would face away. So the cherubim represented the relationship between God God. And the Jewish people were also told that between their wings is the spot from which the voice emanated that Moshe received his prophecy. So that was the most essential inner spot. Okay, that is the inside room. The temple building itself had two rooms, an antechamber and the Holy of Holies. And then the entire Courtyard, a temple had a courtyard surrounded by a uh, curtain, if you will. So the antechamber, the first room, had three implements in it. It had uh, a table that breads were put on. It had a golden altar where incense were burned, and it had a menorah. Let's start talking about the table, because that's the order in the Torah. So the ta- table uh, had breads that were baked every week. They were put on the table and we're told that there was a miracle that they would stay fresh from week to week. of Shabbat, they would be replaced and the Kohanim would eat the breads and they were still fresh after a week. And no, not because they were full of chemicals like Wonder Bread. It was true Wonder Bread. It was called Lechem Apanim, the face bread. Uh, different reasons given. They were baked with a... Uh, according to some, in a mold that had a kind of a flat side and they were semicircled. So that was kind of the face that was at the front. And each of these uh, three implements represented a different institution in the Jewish people and a different dimension of national life. The table represented uh, prosperity, material wealth, being sustained, the branch of government that brought that to the Jewish people was the king. So the shulchan represents the table represents material uh, sustenance. The menorah, which is light, represents Torah. Right, light is the most spiritual element that we can see, but we can't touch. The Torah represents the uh, menorah represents light. And the altar with incense represents the kohanim, the priests who served God and brought offerings to God. And it represents for us to bring offerings of ourselves, of our lives to the almighty. Prayer being the one that substituted the offerings in the temple. So let's talk about the, uh, the menorah now. How is the menorah of the Mishkan different than the menorah on Hanukkah? So Amar Menorah has how many branches? Eight or nine with the shamas. The one in the temple had how many? Seven branches. And the seven branches uh, came up in six on the sides and one center one. And seven, of course, is the number of spiritual completion, uh, of sanctifying the physical, six days of the week, and then Shabbat. And interestingly, the eternal light, which we have in our synagogues today, over the ark, wasn't over the ark. It was on the menorah, and it wasn't the central light, according to most. It was the second to left light. And those two lights, every day miraculously, instead of burning 12 hours, which is the amount of oil that was put on them, and they were lit in the evening, it would continue burning through, through the next day for 24 hours. So interesting that uh, the menorah back then also had a miracle where the light was extended, but different from ours. Svardim called the Hanukkah one a Hanukkiah, not a menorah. And according to some, one is not supposed to have the seven-branched menorah in a synagogue because we don't want people to think the synagogue is actually the temple. Uh, The temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem Um, one of the reasons that the reform movement named their synagogues temples is because they didn't want to be focused on Jerusalem. They wanted to be focused on Paris or Berlin and showed that they were loyal citizens of those countries. So they said, even though the rabbis call a synagogue a Mikdash Me'at, a mini sanctuary, a mini temple, but we make careful, we're careful to point out that it's not the actual temple. So, That's the menorah. Now, uh, interestingly enough, the golden uh, incense altar will only be mentioned at the end of the Parsha. And the reason usually given is because it represents the Kohanim who are totally dedicated to God. But um, it was the place where incense were offered. And we think of incense, we think of Eastern religions, Um, but it was part of the Jewish spiritual experience. However, the mixture is described in the Torah, although it's not clear what all the Hebrew names of all of the ingredients were, but the Torah says you're forbidden to make that mixture and to burn it. You're not allowed. It's only for the temple. Okay, so now the rest of the description will deal with the actual building of the temple Mishkan of the dwelling place which was had these two rooms first it tells us the covers it what, it had boards on the side and wool and leather covers uh, going over the top there were four levels of covers there was spun wool which was multicolored there was a tent of goat skins one of um, of red uh, Uh, lambskins, and then one of techashim, And it's not clear what animal that was, but three leather ones, one wool one. If it rained, which it does sometimes in the desert, you know that it's not going to get through. Um, The boards on the side. Each side had 10 boards, and uh, sorry, 20 on each side. And Under each board, they were held up by these silver uh, base that a peg from the board fit into. The boards were lined up, and then there was a uh, joining rod, which either, some say it was in the middle of the board, some say that there were rings on the outside of the board that the rod went through to hold it together. There was a sideboard, and then the boards were on three sides. The front was left open and had another embroidered wool uh, type of carpet, if you will, or drapery, which hung in the front, which had embroidered on it um, lions. And then inside, separating the anteroom from the Holy of Holies, was another embroidered drapery. So those two were dividing off the two spaces. They were held up by four poles, golden poles, and um, separated different rooms. Finally, you had, as we said, a larger enclosure, which was 100 cubits. What is a cubit? A cubit is approximately a forearm, which is a foot and a half. So it would have been about 150 feet long. And uh, 50 amot, which would have been 75 feet by another um, by another uh, 150 feet. In the front side, which was open, you had 15 amot on each side of drapery. And that created the entire enclosure. Over the next three weeks, next week we'll talk about the clothes, mostly the clothes that the high priest wore, and also intricate descriptions. And as we go on, we'll describe more of the reasons why offerings were brought, how to understand animal offerings, and more about this idea of the divine encounter in the Mishkan, in God's dwelling place for the Jewish people in the desert. Shabbat Shalom, and uh, thank you for joining